on that note, then I will tell you a little bit about my own um, interest in Illich um, and, and lead into this conversation uh, that went to this class that way. And after doing that, I'll essentially today sort of sketch um, a brief outline of his life. Uh, you know, I, I think he's one of these figures for whom his his life and his thought are not easily separable. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a, a good thing uh, it, to... Rarely today do we encounter people with you know, very strong convictions and very challenging uh, positions who nonetheless manage to live these out in their own life and their own experience. Um, so I, I first encountered the work of Ivan Illich through Alan Jacobs, who is possibly someone that some of you are familiar with. He's um, an English scholar uh, for a long time at Wheaton College, uh, but more recently in recent years at Baylor University. And uh, Alan is someone that I've um, admired and whose work I've respected. And at the time, I was in a PhD program, sort of studying. Um, uh, it, it was called text and technology, so it was sort of a digital humanities program. And so I was interested at the time in things like the history of the book and whatnot. And um, Alan, in a blog post, had, had mentioned, I think it was by way of critiquing a, a, a one book and saying that there's there's so many better versions of this kind of thing. Uh, and he listed three books, and one of those was a book called In the Vineyard of the Text by Ivan Illich. And so I was intrigued enough to pick that up on his recommendation. And I was immediately captivated. We will talk about this particular book uh, towards the, the tail end of the class. I think it will be the last book we discuss. Um, but it, I found it to be a really erudite and yet um, beautifully written and compelling work. And I was immediately drawn. It was, it was not unlike any of the other academic writing that I was reading at the time. And in that way, it was very refreshing. Um, it occurred to me that it was a very morally serious book as well as, as an academically serious book. Um, and so I was immediately drawn to the scholar who's reflected on these pages. Uh, my own interests um, are in, as a couple of people have alluded, um, sort of the relation between technology and society uh, or the moral dimensions of technological culture, however one wants to put that. And so Illich had written about that. I, I learned not just about um well, in the Vineyard of the Text was a, uh, a study of 12th century uh, technologies of reading. I'll actually say more about that today. Um, but he had written about more contemporary technologies as well. And uh, his best known book along those lines was called Tools for Conviviality. And, and we'll actually take a couple of weeks, I think, to go over the ideas in that book. Um, and I was immediately captivated um, by, by his critique. I, I like to say that um, Illich is a radical thinker in the literal sense of the word. And so we sometimes say radical just to mean extreme or um, polarizing. But the root of the word radical is the Greek word uh, for root, actually, uh, radix. And so someone who gets to the root of things, right? Someone who gets to the root of problems or the root of issues. Uh, and, and Illich certainly seemed to do that to me. Um, he went beyond uh, what we might think of as sort of superficial complaints about modern society and, and addressed things in a way that address dynamics and, and, um, and structures of modern society in a way I had not seen before in a way that I thought was very compelling. And so I began to read a little bit more of his work. I do have a newsletter. I, I titled it The Convivial Society uh, with a nod to Illich. And uh, in the past couple of years, that newsletter has actually been an interesting gateway for me to come to know um, a number of people who were connected with uh, Ivan Illich. So Illich died in 2002. And there are still many people who were close friends of his and associates of his um, who are living and working and active. Um, and the the 
sort of short version of the story is that I, I decided to uh, do a reading group based uh, with my newsletter and decided on a whim to ask Carl Mitchum, who's a philosopher of technology and friend of villages, if he would um, be willing to do a Zoom interview. This was uh, shortly into our quarantine season and thought, well, I take advantage of the situation. And uh, Carl was more than uh, generous with his time and, and was very welcoming. Um, and, and this actually became a pattern. It, it was an entry into this uh, network of friends um, and colleagues of villages uh, who all have extended uh, a remarkable amount of, of hospitality. And uh, I've been able to, to take advantage of that. And so uh, that'll be a little reflected to some degree in, in what we uh, do and how I approach his uh, his work and so that that solidified, I think, in many ways, and expanded the role that it just played in my own thinking. And I, and I certainly continue to think, and, and all the more so that he's a vital thinker for our time. Hence this class, uh, which I think Dr. Horner invited me to teach, and I was certainly not going to pass up on that. And so uh, glad for all of you to to be joining along here. So let me talk a little bit about Illich's life. Um, and uh, again, if you have any questions at any point, I, I can see you all fairly well on the screen here. Feel free to just interject, unmute yourselves um, and um, and ask the question. And I'll, I'll make a point of stopping it here and there to um, to make sure that I at least create a little bit of space for that. But otherwise, I'm going to kind of try to zoom through this, um, no pun intended, fairly quickly. Illich was born in 1926 in Vienna, Austria, um, and he came from a, an interesting family background. Uh, his, his father was Croatian, and on that side of his family, he was actually descended uh, from an aristocratic, a longstanding aristocratic family. Uh, his grandfather, in particular, still lived in an estate on an island off the coast of Croatia, specifically off of the, the province of Dalmatia. Um, that housed uh, an estate that included vineyards and, and a winemaking operation that went back into the Middle Ages. And so there was a, a, a deep history there and a very old world, old European uh, way of life that was still very much present in 1926. Um, Illich tells a, an anecdote about being taken uh, to his grandfather's um, estate on this island uh, around the time that he was 12. Uh, and and knowing that that world, that that island and, uh, and his grandfather's estate represented was passing. Uh, but he had, he had enough of a taste of it, I think, to give him an interesting perspective on the world that was unfolding in his own lifetime. Um, he was separated from his father in 1932 uh, because of um, the fact that in Yugoslavia, his mother, being half Jewish, uh, was beginning to experience some difficulties. And so his mother... And his two younger twin brothers and Devon, uh, when he was just six years old, uh, moved back to Vienna to, to be with his grandfather on his uh, mother's side. And he never saw his father again. Uh, his father died, as I'll mention in a moment, in 1942, in the middle of World War II. Um, and so that's his father's son. The mother's uh, side, he, his mother was a Sephardic Jew, uh, that is uh, a Jewish family with origins in Spain and Portugal, who had along the way converted to Catholicism. Uh, she was born in Germany. And so this, this uh, sort of mixed heritage, Jewish, and then part of the sort of Catholic aristocracy, um, is part of the reason why Illich referred to himself often as a wandering Jew and a Christian pilgrim. Uh, and that very much describes his vocation uh, throughout his adult life. And even as we'll see in his younger life, he never settled anywhere 
long, for long. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, to my knowledge, never owned a home. Uh, so very much a wandering Jew and Christian pilgrim throughout his life. In 1942, his uh, family had to flee again uh, from Austria, which of course was under German control at that time, uh, because when his father died, and I'm not sure what the particulars of the legislation or the regulations were here, but when his father died, uh, he was now considered not half Aryan, but half Jewish. Um, and so his family was under threat in, um, in Nazi Austria. And so they fled to Florence, Italy in 1942, which is where young Illich completed what we would sort of think of as his high school uh, education and then went on uh, to study at the Gregorian University in Rome, uh, and then finally uh, to complete a PhD at the University of Salzburg. This is after the war is over. Uh, his PhD was in history, uh, where he studied the work of the historian Arnold Toynbee. And uh, interest in history will characterize um, Illich's thought and his scholarly work throughout the rest of his life. Um, but I, I will mention here that um, he was a brilliant scholar, and in many ways it was very much cut out for what we would sort of think of as a, as a traditionally academic life. Uh, one of um, the marks of, of Illich's biography is that he was um, a polyglot. Uh, I, I've not been able to track down or, or settle on the exact number of languages, but uh, from what I can tell, he was fluent easily in at least eight languages uh, and, and probably could hold his ground with at least four or five others. Uh, so he was a remarkably talented individual. And along the, along the way, along with earning a PhD in history, uh, he was also at this time in his life ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church. An interesting little tidbit, he did his first, he conducted his first mass in the catacombs in Rome. All of this is to say that he is at this point as a very young man, an accomplished young man, a talented young man, uh, with a, a family that has long roots in the Catholic Church. He's, he's basically extremely well positioned to climb the hierarchy of the Roman church. And in fact, there were many in the hierarchy of the Roman church who had essentially seen and recognized his talents and had kind of marked out this path for him. And so Illich did what would become characteristic of him. He left because he had no intention of having his life marked out in that way. And he had no intention of becoming what, what he might later call a career bureaucrat in, in the Catholic church. And he instead came to the United States. So. Uh, I've marked out his life in these phases, and so this this was one phase, sort of Vienna to Rome, including this time in Salzburg and back. And then from from this point on, he essentially flees, not persecution, but he flees the constraints of a career, of the role of a career prelate in the Catholic Church. And he comes to the United States to Harvard University, where he wanted to do post, uh, what we today would call post-doctoral work in the history of alchemy, which is a very strange and sort of esoteric thing to have chosen. But he wanted to study the work of Albert Magnus uh, or Albert the Great. Uh, he's best remembered today in theological uh, or philosophical circles as the teacher of Thomas Aquinas. And he is also uh, well known for his sort of alchemical writings. And Illich took an interest in this. And and if if you've read these School of Society or if you ever do read it, you'll notice that there are a couple of places where he makes these passing references to alchemy. And he had this sort of lifelong, never quite developed interest in alchemy as a, as a, as a sort of characteristic mode of thought for the modern world. So basically he comes to Harvard and he wants to live a, the, the life of a, a quiet, retired scholar, uh, retired not as in, you know, ceasing to work, but retired from public view, right? 
But he, he makes a visit to New York where one of his grandfather's friends was living at the time. And when he comes to New York, this is in 1951, um, he is introduced to a, a burgeoning Puerto Rican population in New York. So this is sort of in the midst of the first waves of Puerto Rican immigrants coming to New York. And they found what many immigrants uh, over the years uh, found when they came to New York, and that is that they, they were very quickly sort of an outgroup, uh, even in the eyes of their co-religionists, like the Irish Catholics and the Italian Catholics, who had in their own day likewise been uh, sort of shunned and marginalized, and now much the same was happening from them to the Puerto Ricans. And, and um, Illich immediately took an interest uh, in this community uh, immediately wanted to see them receive uh, a better welcome from the church in their new adopted country. And so he requested that he be uh, installed in a local parish in New York, and he was. And so now this uh, starts a kind of a four-year, four to five-year period of active parish ministry. I want, I want to read you a quote from somebody who knew him at the time and his name is Father Joseph Fitzpatrick. He was a professor of sociology at Fordham University, which is in New York. Excuse me. In an interview, he had this to say about Illich's time as a priest. He said he was profoundly revered. He became an outstanding figure. People in the parish just loved him. And the thing that they always remarked was the devotion with which he said his mass. They were most impressed at the evidence of, of great devotion at his mass. And secondly, uh, Fitzpatrick went on to say, he was very much involved in their lives in a way in which I would say very few priests were involved in their lives at that particular time. And I read that because I think that's um, a testament to the, the Illich's spirit. And I think throughout his life, he uh, shows ample evidence of, of being deeply interested uh, by the plight of marginalized groups that others would shun for one reason or another. And, and we see already this glimpse of, uh, of that in his life here. And so uh, he, as he said, deeply popular in 1956. So this is about four years after his uh, work in the Puerto Rican community in New York. The culmination of these efforts is a, a celebration uh, that in, included 30,000 people gathering on the campus of Fordham University on the, the feast day of San Juan or, or St. John, which is a patron, paint of, uh, patron saint of Puerto Rico. And Illich celebrated a mass and it was this uh, wonderful um, fiesta, sometimes called, and a great success. Uh, and it sort of marked, as one um, writer said, the, the, the a kind of coming out party for the Puerto Rican community in New York at this time. And at this point, Illich is all of 30 years old. And, and he is, um, because of his, uh, of his activity in this community, the arch, the Bishop of, uh, of New York signals him out to be, receive the honorific title of Monsignor. And so he became the youngest Monsignor, uh, in the, uh, diocese. And, and essentially this is not a, an, an elevation of, of status, just a, a title that measure of conferring honor on the person who receives it. Now, again, Illich, standing out by his efforts and by his work and by his talents. And so he is assigned to be the vice rector of the Catholic University in Puerto Rico this same year, 1956, where this um, this culminating celebration had taken place. And then at the same time, he is also in this role as vice rector of the Catholic uh, University in Puerto Rico, uh, assigned to a board that oversaw all of the education, uh, public education that was happening on the island. 
And here, especially for those of you who are interested in his work on schooling, here are the roots of his interest in modern schooling. Here's where he sort of gets to experience for the first time what was required and what was involved um, in mass compulsory schooling. So again, this is 1956 and, and a couple of, you know, a couple of years around that. And de-schooling society won't come out until 1971. And so there's a, there's a period of, of a good deal of time, uh, more than a decade in which Illich is trying to understand the nature of education, how it's practiced. It's what he sees are his, it's evident problems. And we will take a, a week to discuss de-schooling society, but this is where the roots of, of that transformation in his thinking begin. And so it is also the beginning, I should say, of his uh, run-ins with, with the hierarchy of the church. Now, already we've seen that he, he sort of fled from it in the sense that he didn't want to become involved in it. And want, he didn't want that to define his career. Uh, but he com- comes into what we might think of as some more explicit confrontations. And it involved initially Illich's statements in support of candidates uh, for political office who did not actively oppose contraception. Uh, and so you'll remember that the Catholic Church to this day takes a stand in opposition to contraception. Uh, and while today, given our, you know, our day and age, this is hardly a blip on the radar, in the 19, um, late 1950s, it, it was a significant issue. And so Illich expressed his willingness to support candidates uh, that did not explicitly oppose opposition in, uh, to contraception in Puerto Rico. And for this, uh, the, the more conservative elements of the church in Puerto Rico took him to task. Uh, and part of Ken, part of um, Illich's concern is in 1960, which is also the year that John F. Kennedy uh, was running for president. And you remember that Kennedy is the first Catholic president, Biden just the second, actually. So, uh, it, there was something in the air at the moment here that, that Illich felt it was worth his, what he understood to be his career and his position uh, in Puerto Rico to speak out on this issue. And indeed, it did garner him a great deal of opposition. And, and that would kind of continue steadily over the ensuing decade. Uh, but that forced him to leave. In other words, he, he, given this confrontation, given the issues that came up around it, he decided it was better for him to leave Puerto Rico. And so that in my little sketch here will mark another break, as it were, in Illich's life story. So from New York to Puerto Rico, and now on to Mexico. And so this next phase, uh, which is the phase where he begins to have a very public persona um, and become a very much what we would think of as a sort of public intellectual, uh, begins to unfold. And so he moves to, uh, to Cuernavaca, Mexico in 1961. And there he founds what initially he called the Center for International Intercultural Formation. And he later on went to rename this uh, the Center for International Documentation. And this is what it's generally remembered as today. So it's sometimes just called CDOC. I'll just remember, uh, you know, refer to it as CDOC, S-I-D-O-C, Center for International Documentation. It was a very interesting organization. Uh, it's hard to classify exactly what it did. Its beginnings were in Illich's efforts to prepare American clergy to serve the Puerto Rican community in the United States. So the idea is that young Catholic priests, say in New York, uh, come, and he had begun this work in Puerto Rico and just moves it to Mexico, would come to CDOT, uh and learn Spanish, receive intensive language uh, training, but also be immersed in Puerto Rican culture so that they might be able then to return to the United States and better minister to the Puerto Rican community there. 
Illich also um, used this opportunity to oppose a, a major uh, movement in the 1960s, which comes to just be known as sort of development, right? So, for example, we're used to hearing uh, the language of the developed and underdeveloped world. This language comes out of initially um, uh, a speech that Harry Truman, American President Harry Truman gives uh, in the early 50s, but then very much gets developed in the 1960s, which comes to be known as the development decade, and especially under the auspices of John F. Kennedy, uh, and think especially of the founding even of the Peace Corps during this time. And so there's this effort by first world developed nations through their charities, through their work, through their volunteerism to help develop the so-called underdeveloped world. We'll take a great deal of time to sort of unpack this in the coming weeks, but essentially Illich thought that this was, how shall we put it, less than helpful for the people that it aimed to serve. And that in many ways, in trying to reorder the lives of local indigenous populations uh, and, and, and make them mirror what developed nations sort of think of as, you know, healthy, developed society, modern society, uh, and raise them out of a, a kind of ostensible poverty, it actually left them worse off uh, in Illich's view than uh, they were before. And, and again, we'll, I'll explain the details of why Illich thought that. But Illich made it his point, in other words, to entrain these priests in Spanish and Puerto Rican culture to also basically undermine this whole narrative that was unfolding both in politics and in the church, because the Pope at the time had also called for the North American church to commit up to 10% of its um, priests and uh, ministers to the underdeveloped world in Latin America. And so the Catholic Church had very much sort of answered the same call that John F. Kennedy had issued to help the underdeveloped world become developed, as it were. And so Illich was not only opposing uh, the efforts of the American government, uh, but also the explicit designs of um, the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. And so needless to say, he continued to run into some difficulties on that score. But he was still uh, very much recognized as a, as, a, as a brilliant scholar and someone with talents to contribute. And so the 19, early 1960s, uh, ecclesially, were also marked by the Second Vatican Council, which um, went a long way towards modernizing the Catholic Church. Illich was invited to come uh, to serve one of the cardinals that was overseeing the presiding over the, the Second Vatican Council, and Illich was called over to be an assistant. He lasted, uh, I'm not sure the exact tenure of his time there, but it was very, very brief, because Illich immediately did not like what he, see, or what he saw. The one issue that kind of put him over the edge was the unwillingness in the early meetings of the Second Vatican Council, the unwillingness of the, of the church to actively oppose uh, the regime of nuclear weapons. And so the way that the, the phrasing was put in committee at this time is that, that the church is not yet ready to condemn nuclear weapons. Illich thought that this was uh, absurd, that it, it went against everything that he believed that the New Testament taught uh, and thought that it was the most obvious thing in the world for the church to denounce nuclear weapons. And so it was on this point that he made his case and, and decided that he was going to leave and, and return to uh, Cuernavaca. In, in making this case to his uh, friend and superior who had called him to, to Rome, he showed him a cartoon 
uh, that had been drawn, what we think of sort of a political cartoon. And in it, there were five sort of official looking Catholic figures, the Pope, maybe some cardinals. And, and they were all looking at, at the middle in between, in the middle of this group, there was um, on the one hand, a nuclear weapon, and on the other hand, a condom. And all the figures were pointing towards this middle, towards these two images. And on the bottom, it, the, the caption read, it's unnatural. Uh, and Illich's point in showing this to uh, his superior was to say that, that he's glad to be a part of a body that is willing to call something unnatural, but he doesn't think that um, they're pointing at the right thing. And so this both exemplifies his, his, his support of contraception on the one hand, but also his adamant opposition to the development of nuclear weaponry. And so with that, he leaves Rome and returns back to Mexico, where he continued uh, to rile uh, feathers. Next, The next sort of incident is his opposition to the mounting use of torture uh, by several political regimes in South America, Brazil specifically, uh, and in Central America and Mexico. And this caused a great deal of controversy, especially to the degree that many of these regimes were being propped up um, by the American government and, and by the CIA. And so at, at various points, he was pushing against very powerful currents politically and, uh, and even ecclesially. We'll read a couple of, of his essays, or I should not say we'll read, we'll discuss. I'll talk about a couple of his essays from this period calling for what he calls a powerless church, a church that renounced the temptations of power and also for the reform of the priesthood. And all of this just continued to rile up, especially the, 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 the very conservative elements of the Catholic Church in Mexico. Let me read you another um, uh, paragraph, uh, or not even a paragraph, just a couple of lines. Uh, these lines come from a magazine called Hente, uh, which is just translated people or of the people. And it was actually put out by Opus Dei, which you may know as a, as a very conservative Catholic, uh, group of, of, group of Catholic clergy. And they, in this uh, magazine, essentially were warning the Bishop of Cuernavaca against Illich and against his association with Illich and against having Illich and Sidoc present, uh, in, in his diocese. And here's how they refer to him. They call him that strange, devious and slippery personage crawling with indefinable nationalities who is called or claims to be called Ivan Illich. And this is a remarkable statement, uh, not least uh, for the way in which it sort of drips with this sort of xenophobic and probably explicitly anti-Semitic language, right? Crawling with indefinable nationalities. Um, and this is the kind of opposition that Illich was um, receiving and not just with words. Um, Illich never developed them very much or, or, or commented at length about incidents, uh, but he, he did mention on more than one occasion uh, encountering physical uh, opposition and being, uh, CDOC being shot at. And so this will eventually lead to its closure. But there was, there was not only sort of verbal, but even uh, sort of physical violence that confronted him and those that gathered around him. Uh, meanwhile, in a sense, CDOC flourished. Uh, it drew scholars from around the world, notable figures uh, like Paulo Fieri, a, a, a renowned uh, educational theorist, uh, the American sociologist or the German-American sociologist Peter Berger, um, the anarchist uh, political philosopher Paul Goodman, and many others gathered at CDOC, which became essentially a kind of free university, or what we might today think of as a think tank, uh, where people are always welcome to come and, and, and collaborate 
and think together on the issues that um, Illich thought were, were most important. But his, his opposition uh, to both some of the church's explicit teachings, sort of the political positions that the church in, in Mexico was taking, did eventually lead to his being called before the office, the holy office of the Catholic Church, which is a modern day, uh, the modern day version of what we associate with the office of the Inquisition uh, in the um, post-Reformation era. And so uh, he was called before the holy office in Rome and he dutifully went. This is in 1968. Um, and he was presented uh, with a series of questions that he, he had to answer uh, and, and as he later puts it right, they were all, they were all questions, uh, of the, when did you stop beating your wife variety, right? Implicit in the question was his guilt. And, and he refused to answer them. And so he essentially said to the, um, cardinal in charge of, of the, um, in a sense, literal inquisition, uh, that he would not answer these questions and demanded, because the other thing that they demanded of him is that his complete silence as to what would happen in, in these closed door meetings. Again, he refused. Uh, he received in writing a, s- a series of questions that were asked, and this is when he sort of refused to answer them. Um, and with that, as he describes it, when he comes to announce that, that he's going to not answer these questions, um, he says that the, the cardinal in charge of, of these, uh, of this questioning says to him, get going, get going and never come back and dismisses this from, from his office. And, and he says he realizes as he's walking down the hallway after having left the office that this cardinal has just quoted the closing lines of the Grand Inquisitor's uh, speech in the Brothers Karamazov, um, where the Grand Inquisitor says to the figure of Jesus who's been imprisoned, get going, get going, and never come back. If you know the story, there's actually a lot that's very appropriate about that. Um, but he leaves... And in 1969, the following year, uh, Sidoc is officially put under interdict. Uh, the Catholic Church um, forbids priests and nuns and any uh, clergy from attending or participating in it. This leads Illich then to send a letter to the Archbishop of New York, in whose diocese uh, he was still officially uh, serving under the auspices of the Diocese of New York, and he, he offers to suspend his priestly functions. Illich took very seriously the idea that the priest was a figure of unity and that when, when a priest would introduce discord into the church, which I, I want to stress, he remained loyal and faithful to. Illich often spoke of the church as she and as it to distinguish the church as the organic body of Christ and the church as an institution that had grown um, to, um, to love its power too much as, as you would think of it. And, and he, he was willing to remain loyal to the church. And so he's, he said he would suspend all priestly functions. In other words, he would no longer speak publicly as a cleric of the, of the Catholic church. With that, it seems that, um, the church considered matters closed and ceased to sort of, you know, meddle in his affairs, as it were. There was some question, sometimes when Illich is described, he is described as an ex-priest. And I, I actually wanted to track this down a little bit to make sure that this is uh, correct. Because this is actually not right. He was never defrocked and he never renounced his priesthood. And so for his uh, entire life, he he was a priest. Um, I, I double checked this with David Cayley, who is one of Illich's very close friends and an interviewer for the CBC, in the Canadian Broadcasting Company, who has done a great bit to... Um, 
to further Illich's uh, work and, and his own reputation. But in any case, what Cayley noted is that after this letter and after um, Illich essentially says he's suspending priestly, you know, the, the function of his priestly office, no further action is taken against him. And in fact, later on in the later in the late seventies, when he began to teach as a professor at the University of Kassel in Germany, uh, he was somewhat surprised to find that his first check came addressed to Monsignor Ivan Illich. And when he called the bursar, which is sort of the person in charge of university finances, to uh, double check, the bursar told him that he had consulted the papal nuncio or ambassador, as it were, in Bonn in Western Germany, and had been told that Illich was still listed. Uh, as a prelate of the church in the sort of official registry of, of, of Catholic clergy. And so Illich remained a priest his whole life uh, and never denounced uh, his priesthood and was never, never defrauded. But uh, this was in many respects sort of the, the uh, it, it did draw a line, right? So Illich here be, s- stops to speak in an explicitly theological fashion. And so when, when you pick up the schooling society or tools for conviviality or any of his later works, it is not evident that you're reading a Christian. Uh, it, it, he speaks in a, in a way that doesn't hide, but to some degree veils his Christian convictions. And, and this is an interesting point. And, and uh, might, I might end up saying something about that here before we break today. But I do want to kind of push a little bit forward. But I want to pause also for a moment. because I realize I've been talking nonstop for a good while. Has this raised any questions or are there any comments you want to make at this juncture? Um, before, before I move on to kind of the second half of, of his public career. This is fascinating. Okay, good. <laughs> no questions. <laughs> All right. Hearing none that. Yeah, go ahead, David. I was just going to say he, he sounds like he's ahead of his time because considering where he starts in 1926, like the fact, first off, we're so removed from the concept of aristocrats over here. One being in America, two being in this century, um, that like I didn't even realize that was less than a hundred years ago. Um, I, I didn't realize that aristocrats were still around back in that time. Um, but just seeing his perspective in change from the old way to the modern day, and I just that floors me. But I'm curious to understand, like, how did he? Uh, his how he looked at development because that's a, an idea that is just I feel like it's just coming out now that like underdeveloped is not really that we should see cultures on their own as good and beautiful yeah and so that I'm so curious now to see yeah. if it like how his um life led him to that yeah I think the short answer is that 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 he lived with these people uh, he cared for them. Um, he had a genuine concern for them. He didn't just see them as objects to be manipulated for ideological purposes. Um, I, uh, so I've, I've interviewed a couple of, of um, two or three of, of Illich's colleagues, uh, and, and I don't want to come off as self-promoting, but I may link you to one of these interviews uh, with Gustavo Esteva, who is a, a Mexican activist, scholar and activist. And you know, one of the things that, that he told me is that, you know, when, when he is teaching some of the indigenous um, members of the indigenous society in Mexico, uh, Oaxaca, Mexico is the province that he's in. Um, he finds that there's an immediate resonance with Illich's work. They don't they don't have the same terminology, but there's this. Oh, yes. No, of course, this is correct. Right? Of course, this is true. Um, and 
and, and, and that they are able to hear Illich's ideals and values and, um, and critiques in a way that many of us aren't. Uh, and so there's, there's a, I think there's a genuine symbiosis between I, not underdeveloped, right? But these indigenous populations, uh, their values, their world, uh, and what Illich wanted to preserve because he saw it live, right? And I think he saw the effect of, uh, the efforts of development, both in the modern world. He's, because again, his own world, you know, part of the first world today, we would think of as Europe, right? But he knew Europe. He knew a Europe before Europe was industrialized, fully industrialized. Um, and so, you know, interestingly, that quote that I, you know, gave you in that email, uh, today, uh, that he, he felt like the more traditionally he spoke, the more radically he came across. Uh, and that is because that perspective, that old world perspective helped him to see the value in a way of life or a mode of living that industrialization, industrialized society, um, eclipsed and, and displaced, uh, with its, you know, with, within his view, disastrous consequences. It's his willingness, I think, to, to live close to these populations and see their, you know, the, the, the value of their life and, and the, the measure of contentment that they enjoyed. Um, and, you know, without romanticizing them, I think Illich is not a, a, a sort of romanticizing the past or rosy eyed about the, the plight of people in, in underdeveloped, uh, situations or, or in, in, in Conditions where we would say, you know, the, the, the hallmarks of a comfortable Western life are not available. Uh, but, but he did recognize that they, they had an integrity, uh, that the, pre, the, the push to develop overthrew, uh, and added a, a, a new layer of poverty. I mean, this is as inherent even as his particular schooling, right? Schooling not only in his view failed to produce the kind of equality that it promised, but it added a new psychological poverty because now you knew yourself to be inadequate in just one more way, right? One of the consequences of schooling in his view is that everybody always knows where they dropped out, right? And they, and they, their worth is sometimes attached to that sense that I only got this far, but in Illich's view, it's only this far in a completely artificial system that shouldn't be, the anchor of our self-worth. But again, we'll say more about that later. But good, yeah, good question. Let me do this we, because we have a relatively small amount of time. So this biography will spill a little bit over into next week, but let me just push forward a little bit more. The next phase of Illich's life is in many respects his most productive, publicly productive. It's, it's a relatively short fa- phase. In some respects, it's 1970 to 1976, maybe into 1980. But this is where Illich becomes a public figure, where his essays are picked up by major publications in the United States and, uh, where his lectures are sold out. Uh, David Cayley again in interviews with, um, with Illich notes that one time he was at a talk that Illich was giving in Vancouver and Illich mistakenly identified the city as Seattle. Uh, and, and Kaylee took that just to be a, a, a testament to the fact that Illich is basically hopping from city to city giving these talks and is losing track of where he is. Uh, so he has an incredible demand. His books like Deschooling Society, Tools for Conviviality, Energy and Equity, and the book that comes to be known as Limits of Medicine all come out uh, during this time period. And they're all very popular. They're bestsellers. David, you mentioned his being ahead of his time. Very much so. I think, you know, it's, it's incredibly prescient work. An environmentalist, uh, before environmentalism became sort of the default public position. Um, a, an advocate for indigenous cultures, um, before 
post-colonial studies was a thing, right? A critic of uh, the way that we, the transportation uh, industry uses energy uh, long before that became sort of, the, again, sort of the default position in, in popular culture, identifying the ways in which um, medicine, the practice of medicine, the institution of modern medicine was just as likely to make us sick as to keep us healthy long before these concerns were mainstream. And so in, in all of these areas, yeah, definitely a very prescient thinker. By 1976, CDOC closes. Um, one, because Illich felt that this stage of his work had, had, had run its course, uh, what he called his campaigning period or his pamphleteering period. He referred to these books as pam- pamphlets, you know, thrown out into the world to agitate the, the state of things. Uh, he felt that that period was over. And from this point forward, he essentially becomes an itinerant scholar. He has stints uh, at a handful of American universities, most notably Penn State, where there is still a cadre of, um, of scholars working who very much keep his work alive. There's a journal of Illich Studies that is based in Penn State University. And also part of his time he spent in Germany. Um, in he, he traveled through India and Southeast Asia looking um, for a vantage point from which to view Western society even more deeply, even more uh, critically. In other words, he, he began to recognize that even his, his critical work was somehow missing something about the deep structures and the deep assumptions of the Western mind of the industrialized, of industrialized society. And he wanted to find a, a, a way of gaining an even better vantage point. And he initially thought that if he could immerse himself in uh, Eastern cultures, that he would be able to pull this off. And he made this attempt to add uh, Asia, Southeast Asian languages to his repertoire, found that at this point, this was probably a bridge too far. And he retreats instead, retreats is not the right word. He finds his, his point of perspective in medieval culture. And all along the way, he had been a, a student of medieval culture. Remember, he came to Harvard in order to study the work of Albert the Great. But all the more so, he, he found in the 12th century specifically, and perhaps even more specifically in the, in the work of Hugh of St. Victor, a different world, one in which if he could immerse himself, he would be able to see very clearly the distinct source of the assumptions and the deep-seated values of the modern world. And I'll, I'll pause this there, and then I'll kind of pick up the tail end of his uh, biography leading up to his death in 2002 in the, in the opening minutes of next week's class. Um, but let me take the last minute, if, if you've got it, to take any final questions or thoughts that you want to um, close with. And uh, and I'm happy, by the way, I should say our official ending time is five o'clock, but I'll always be happy to hang out for a few minutes for anybody who wants to uh, chat a little bit further. So any final thoughts or comments before we officially close? I was just going to ask, do you have a sense of like where he felt most at home? <laughs> That's a good question. Um no, I mean, he lived in so many different places. I think where he felt at home is where his friends were. He, um, and he had friends everywhere. And very often he, he, the course of his life was simply a reflection of where his friends wanted him to be. And I think that, that those dynamics, right, these strong, profound friendships, David Cayley writes that, um, all the things that he was called philosopher, theologian, critic, what best describes him and what he best wanted to be known as was as a friend. Um, and so I think um, that's where he was most at home, where he could find a, a small group of friends uh, to gather around the table, the ubiquitous meal being spaghetti and mediocre wine. Uh, and that's where that's where he was at home. Yeah, that that is that is a good question, too. 
I love the um, illustration he gives of the church as she, as an organic body yeah. of Christ, and as it, sort of this holder of worldly power. It strikes me as a very medieval conception um, of that. It, I mean, it's a problem. It's a something that's you might say plagued the church since Constantine, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested to yeah. learn more about that. Yeah, in, in Rivers North of the Future, which is essentially a book that is dictated, as it were, it's an interview Kayla conducts uh, because he wanted Illich to develop this idea that he has that mo- modern Western culture is a corruption of, of Christianity. Um, not a, a rebellion against or not a working out of, but a, specifically a corruption of. Illich never found the time to write it. And so Kayleigh said, well, let me just interview about it and I'll turn it into a book. And that's Rivers North of the Future. Um, and, and in that book, you then begin to see how his theological thinking and his religiously oriented perspectives have been informing his work all the way through. And so it offers what I would think of as a retrospective lens on, on his concerns and unearths the theological under, underpinnings of his critique of schooling, of his critique of medicine, all of it that where where the the, the explicitly Christian language had been veiled. Okay, well, with that, then I will officially close this and uh, thank you all for joining us. And and we'll we'll pick that up. And uh, again, from this point forward, well, what I'm going to essentially do is sort of string some of his most important works and kind of describe them to you, kind of unpack their arguments for you along the way. Uh, and in that way, I think, hopefully get a, a sense of the major themes of his work, some of his key ideas, and also a sense of how they developed uh, to meet um, the, the changing times. Okay, thank you so, so much, y'all.